You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's get to an update in the University of Idaho murders in Moscow. And I'm going to make this recap brief because I feel like almost all of you know about this case, but if you don't, hop on back to the May 4th episode of Rise and Crime and get all the way caught up. Okay, Brian Koberger is the PhD student accused of murdering Maddie Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, Zana Carnodal, and Etha Chopin. All were fatally stabbed in a King Road apartment somewhere near 4 a.m. on the morning of November 13th. Now, Koberger was eventually arrested in his parents' home in Pennsylvania and then extradited back to Idaho. He entered a not guilty plea via his attorney, and the state contends that Koberger's DNA is a statistical match to the DNA found at the murder scene. But Koberger's defense team says that no DNA from the four victims was found at Koberger's home or at his place of work or even in his car. And remember, the crime scene was horrific and gruesome, and it would be almost nearly impossible to not have some sort of transfer of DNA to Koberger's effects. So this leads experts to believe this isn't quite the slam dunk case that everybody else is saying. And I included that information because I think for some, this case is just over already. Lock him up. But we know just a mere fraction of what the state knows. And maybe it will be easy to convict Koberger, but we just don't know it this time. So let's keep everything clear until the trial. All right, so what's the update? Well, this trial is due to start October 2nd, and there's been a lot of back and forth between the state and the defense. Last week, in a motion, Koberger's attorney maybe let some information slip, or maybe she wanted to set up a defense. Who knows? But this is what went down. The prosecution has filed a motion that the defense should be turning over specific information about Koberger's alibi. They say if the defense doesn't turn over that information, then they can't use any of that evidence linked to that alibi during the trial. 
All right, in a response to that motion, Koberger's attorney, Ann Taylor, wrote that Koberger was out driving during the late night and early morning hours of November 12th and 13th. She wrote that Mr. Koberger has long had a habit of going for drives alone and that often he would go for drives at night. Okay, quite honestly, either side could benefit from this omission by Ann Taylor. So why? Let's break it down. We do know that one of Koberger's neighbors at his apartment complex in Pullman, Washington, told Law and Crime that Koberger stayed up at night. Now, the defense can argue that Koberger was just kind of a night owl and that just because he doesn't sleep at the traditional hours doesn't mean he was out killing four college students on the early morning hours of November 13th. But the prosecution will probably argue that paired with the evidence they have, Koberger is the perfect sort of person to be in the area to kill four college students because of his nocturnal habits that match the 4 a.m. timeline of the murders. So then why did Ann Taylor let it slip? My theory is she is taking advantage of a possible wording discrepancy. Okay, see, the law states that if he is going to present an alibi, he has to share the information or evidence that will back up that alibi. But by Ann Taylor just explaining his habits, he isn't really presenting an alibi, so she doesn't feel that she needs to provide the evidence to the state prosecutors. She said in the court filing that Mr. Koberger isn't claiming to be at any specific location on the night of the murders, and that there is also not any witness who can account for all of Mr. Koberger's whereabouts on that evening and early morning. See, words are really important here. Ann Taylor then goes on to highlight that she believes the prosecution has not been able to produce any witnesses that will corroborate that Koberger was at the King Road residence on the night of the murder. She then goes on and slaps at the prosecution by saying that the state chose a secret grand jury rather than a planned preliminary hearing and that they hampered their own case by doing so. Remember, in the grand jury, it is truly secret. The defense was not allowed to cross-examine witnesses, nor did they know it was even happening in this case. And she wasn't done just yet. She also accused prosecutors of trying to force the defense to hand over, quote, work product. Now, these would be things that the state really doesn't have a right to see. Like, kind of think of a proprietary research on a project before the project is actually complete. You wouldn't want to share that information and wouldn't be expected to. Okay, I can just feel you guys getting more and more angry at Ann Taylor because you want justice for these four beautiful souls. But hear me out. It is important that she fights hard for Koberger. If he is found guilty... No one wants a conviction overturned on appeal because his lawyer didn't do her job correctly and represent Koberger appropriately. So your passion is good. Just remember the process has to run its course. And we actually just saw this on display during the Lori Vallow Daybell case. When Lori was finished giving her statement at the sentencing hearing, Judge Boyce asked her specifically if she was satisfied with her representation. She answered yes, and that is the judge buttoning up things in hopes that there won't be an appeal saying she wasn't adequately represented. 
Now, Koberger will be back in court on August 18th to go over several motions that have been filed by both sides, and he is being held without bond on four capital murder charges. As a side note, the Idaho legislature recently reinstated death by firing squad for those convicted of capital murder because obtaining the drugs for lethal injections has become too difficult. Idaho currently has a death row inmate whose execution has not occurred due to lack of pharmaceuticals in order to perform the execution. Now, it does go without saying, updates will be coming in this case, and of course, we will follow the trial if it actually occurs on October 2nd. All right, now to a story out of Florida. And let me paint the picture of the villages in Florida. It's nicknamed the friendliest hometown, and it's a master-planned, age-restricted community in central Florida that covers about 32 square miles and has just under 80,000 residents that live there. Now, people under the age of 19, they can't live in this community. And if grandchildren come to visit, they can't stay for more than 30 days in a calendar year. In reality, most of the homeowners are over 65 years old, and crime is extremely low, with the actual violent crime rate occurring half as often as the rest of the state of Florida. And if you live in the villages, you probably play golf, or at least you walk the golf courses for exercise, because there are 56 courses within the villages, and 42 of those courses can be played for free if you live within the villages. Sounds like the best of years are in retirement for some of these residents, but it wasn't quite that for two villages golfers about a month ago when the Sumter County Sheriff's Office received a call about a vehicular accident at the Glenview Country Club. That's just the name of one of the courses in the villages. And this seems to be one of the higher end courses and actually one where you do have to pay a greens fee to golf. Now, as first responders were making their way to the parking lot of the country club, A woman called 911 from the exact location and said that her husband had been attacked by someone they didn't know. So we now have a car accident and an assault being reported. The woman told deputies that her husband, 87-year-old Dean Zook, was pulling into a parking spot and he accidentally struck a black Lexus XR350. Now, the reports indicate only minor damage was caused in the accident, But as Dean and his wife were examining the damage, a man approached the couple and yelled, what the hell? You hit my car. Now, witnesses say that Dean admitted it was his fault, and he tried to exchange insurance information with the supposed owner, but things escalated, and the man struck Dean with a closed fist in his jaw. Now, as Dean put his hands up to protect himself, the man threw several more punches, And when the melee finally settled and both men caught their breath, the man that attacked Dean came to the realization that the black Lexus that was slightly damaged wasn't even his car. He then turned and walked away without even offering an explanation. Okay, by the time first responders did arrive at the scene, the attacker had left and Dean was conscious for a few brief minutes. He even answered some of law enforcement's questions. But Dean became unsteady on his feet, and then his speech began to slur. And he was quickly transported to the hospital nestled within the villages. And there, doctors discovered that Dean had a brain bleed. He was airlifted to Shand Medical Hospital. But by the time he arrived at that facility, 
his condition had worsened and he was unresponsive. Now, medical personnel for the next two weeks tried to aid Dean in recovery from the head injury, but he didn't respond to treatments and eventually died on July 15th due to the trauma he sustained by being punched. So who's the mystery attacker that didn't even own the damaged Lexus? Well, police had been able to recover some video surveillance footage that showed a man in a distinct blue polo shirt with a dark blue collar. Now, the attacker appeared to be far taller and bigger than Dean. And police reached out to the community for help. And just one day after the incident, an anonymous tipster sent investigators a message identifying the attacker as Bob and that he had also been golfing at that country club that day wearing that distinct blue polo. Okay, this totally made me laugh because I can't imagine of the roughly 40,000 men who live in the villages, there's got to be so many Bobs or Roberts. You would walk into the clubhouse of the place and yell, Bob, and eight men would turn around and ask what? But at least police had a lead and they checked credit card receipts for people with the name Bob or Robert. And they discovered that a Robert Moore had purchased food that day at the country club restaurant. And investigators then used social media to find pictures of a Robert Moore. They found a photo from nine months ago showing a Robert Moore celebrating his hole-in-one shot at the Tarpon Boyle Executive Golf Course located within the villages. Okay, so here's another funny part. And, and it's not really funny because somebody has, you know, died. But it's just interesting the way court documents are written. See, within these court documents... They say that this Robert Moore in the hole-in-one photo was dressed in a similar way of the surveillance footage of the assailant. Okay, it's a polo and golf shorts. All those Roberts who turned around when you yelled Bob, they're also dressed in polos and golf shorts. It's like the uniform of the villages. Anyway, on July 26th, investigators paid a visit to 75-year-old Robert Moore. Just showed up to ask him questions. Well... He openly copped to the whole thing. He said he only hit Dean because he believed he was trying to flee the scene after hitting the car that Robert thought was actually his. And Moore did say that he hung out for 20 minutes after the altercation waiting for first responders. But when they didn't arrive, he decided to leave. Well, police were able to cross-reference his claims with the surveillance footage, and court documents say that first responders arrived much sooner than 20 minutes. Now, Robert Moore has been charged with one count of aggravated manslaughter of an elderly person. And this is a super interesting charge because in Florida, this charge was created for nursing home patients to have more protection from negligent workers. But it can actually be used in this case in will probably have a higher jail term because of it. Now, Robert was released from jail after posting a $30,000 bond. If convicted, he could serve up to 30 years in prison. His next court date is set for September 26th. Now let's head down under, where the last three weeks, searchers have scoured the Christchurch, New Zealand rural landscapes in search of 44-year-old Yanfei Bao. Yanfei was a highly educated woman who had been a university lecturer at Hubei University of Education in Wuhan, China, and also at the Wuhan Donghu University. She also worked as a translator for a national railway organization in China, 
And this seemed to be like the perfect fit for Yanfei since she had earned a master's degree in English linguistics. Okay, in 2019, ready for a change of pace, Yanfei launched her real estate career with Harcourts. Okay, that's a real estate company in Christchurch. And her co-workers valued Yanfei. They say she was a wonderful addition to the company. Well, on July 19th, Yanfei was set to show a house on Trevor Street. The house was listed by her real estate agency, but she wasn't the listing agent. She had, however, received permission to show the house, and she had obtained a key from a code access lockbox. Now, that morning, she did phone a friend named Yin, and she phoned her via an app called WeChat, and this was at about 11.16 a.m. Yanfei was wanting to know how to transfer $600,000 from China to New Zealand in order to purchase a home, and she was asking Yin for advice on how best to accomplish this. All right, this conversation seems to check out since the house she was showing was listed for $630,000. Now, after mulling over possibilities with Yin on how to transfer the money, she told her she would consult with her client and then she would call Yin back. Well, she never called back. And a little more than an hour later, Yanfei's silver Nissan left the area. And it wasn't until later that afternoon that Yanfei didn't show to pick up her nine-year-old daughter from her after-school daycare program. And this event, well, that spurred workers to alert family that Yanfei was missing. Well, later that evening, her car was spotted just over a mile from the house she had been showing on Trevor Street. And that same night, her husband Paul posted a very desperate plea on Facebook. It read, Urgent appeal. Help us find my beloved wife, Yanfei Bao. We are deeply concerned for the safety and well-being of my wife. Our nine-year-old daughter and I are desperately seeking any information that could lead us to her whereabouts. All right, well, police the next day on July 20th searched the home that Yanfei was showing the potential client. And in a bizarre move, they cleared the scene and told Harcourts that they could continue to market and show the home. They actually allowed Harcourts to hold an open house for potential buyers later that week. Now, Yanfei's co-workers, they took to the streets and they began handing out thousands of flyers door-to-door reading, Missing Person, Help Us Find Yanfei Bao. Well, police got their first break two days later when they found Yanfei's cell phone in some bushes about three miles from the Trevor Street home. And police garnered valuable tracking information from the cell phone. The next day, police stopped a silver Mitsubishi in a parking area of the Air Force Museum. Okay, the driver of the car did exchange conversation with police, and he also allowed police to look in his trunk and then just briefly scan the inside of the car through the car's open doors. Now, police eventually let the car and the driver leave. Then, later that night, police followed the silver Mitsubishi to Christ Church Airport parking areas. Now, after following the man into the terminal, they arrested him. He had no bags with him, but he did have a one-way ticket to Shanghai. And police charged the 52-year-old man with kidnapping. Okay, is there anything more vague than a silver Mitsubishi? It's the car that people probably aren't going to remember. But this one was an exception because it had some unique characteristics. There was a large dent on the trunk of the car, and a yellow sticker with a black kiwi was on one side of the dent. 
Well, after the car was publicized, two residents that lived near the Trevor Street home came forward and said they had actually seen that car parked at a weird angle near the Trevor Street home. And here's where some things start connecting together. The car was also spotted at a home in Brindwire. And investigators discovered that the suspect, the 52-year-old man, well, he rented a room there and that Yan Fei had also sold that home to the owner just a few months prior. Now, police searched that home where the suspect was living, and then finally they seized the property on Trevor Street. The open house had been held the day before, so possibly dozens of people had been through the home. Okay, in America, that would be a devastating move by law enforcement. And I tried researching through posts, and I didn't see much criticism of investigators. Maybe they're just less vocal in New Zealand. Maybe there's just not so many keyboard warriors. So possibly, if you're listening from Christchurch or even New Zealand, can you let me know if it is occurring and if it will harm the potential case? Because I'm not seeing anything reported about allowing that open house to happen. All right, carrying forward. Finally, on July 26th, authorities held a press conference where lead investigator Nicola Reeves read in a two-minute statement the police now believed Yan Fei to be dead, murdered by their current suspect. Now, in a bit of irony, as she gave the statement, she stood in front of a mural that reads, Our vision is to be the safest country. Is anywhere safe anymore? I, I saw that and I was just like, There's not a good place anymore. There's so much crime. All right. Now, Stuff Media, that's a publication out of New Zealand. They say they have learned that police found forensic evidence suggesting that Yan Fei was killed at the Trevor Street home. And it's been three weeks since Yan Fei disappeared, and police are still searching for her remains. A team, sometimes as large as 50 searchers, have scoured the Halswell River and its banks, as well as the Ellesmere Lake. And searchers are using sonar to explore the waters, but weather has been a bit difficult. And heavy rains in week one of her disappearance could have possibly destroyed evidence, making this task of searching for her even more difficult. Now, authorities are indicating that the suspect will be charged with more crimes, quite possibly homicide, and little has been released about the man. Even his court appearance photos have his face blurred, but they did say that he had only been living in Christchurch for a few short months. Other than that, police have been tight-lipped about the suspect. Now, a Give Little crowdfunding site profile has been set up for Yan Fei, and it's raised over $30,000 for her family. In the Give Little description, Family said Yanfei is not only a skilled professional, but also a beloved partner to Paul, a cherished daughter, and a loving mother to her young child, Momo. Police say they are committed to finding Yanfei's remains and that her family deserves that peace and closure. All right, let's do one more quick story. On the July 4th weekend, the busy club Wyndham South Shore Hotel in Lake Tahoe, Nevada, was just that. They were busy with Independence Day vacationers. On July 3rd, a woman woke up in her luxury room to a man fondling her feet. The very next morning, another woman in a different room of the resort woke up to the same man fondling her feet. 
Now, both women confronted the intruder, who seemed to have entered through unlocked sliding glass doors to their individual rooms. Now, in each incident, the foot fondler fled when confronted. Well, police have identified and arrested Mark Anthony Gonzalez of Atwater, California. Gonzalez was booked on two counts of burglary and two counts of battery. He is also suspected of trespassing and stealing women's shoes in several incidents in California. Okay, so while stealing the shoes, he apparently pleasures himself. Now, Douglas County Sheriff Dan Coverley said he was extremely pleased that his investigators were able to identify, locate, and arrest Gonzalez. He also said that he felt Gonzalez's crimes were escalating and that it was important to protect the community from those crimes. All right, well done, Douglas County law enforcement, taking giant steps in helping protect women from criminals who want to tread on their rights. No one should tiptoe around these issues. If we let criminals even have an inch, they will take a whole foot. All right, I'm done. If we can't laugh a little, we're never going to thrive in this crime-ridden world, and I'm truly grateful those women were kept safe. Okay, that's your Monday edition of Rise and Crime. Check in with me on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Give me your feedback on the University of Idaho case and any others that we are closely monitoring on Rise and Crime. And I'm so very grateful for you sharing this community with people. Join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.